Hello everybody, Brendan here. Content warning for extreme violence, war, sexual assault, and ethnic cleansing. So, before we get to today's episode, Roberto and I would like to extend our support and solidarity to the people of Armenia following the recent ceasefire violation by the government of Azerbaijan. As some listeners may know, this conflict has been going on since 1988 and has recently reverted from a relative calm to a full-blown war once again with Azeri attacks against Armenian-held territory, which are majority ethnic Armenian, and subsequent retaliation by the Armenian military. Things are quiet for the moment thanks to a newly negotiated ceasefire. However, these ceasefires have failed before, and that is where our concern lies. Civilians always suffer the most in war, and given the history of this conflict, we join many people around the world in fearing that this time will be no different, either for Armenians or Azeris, whose soldiers and civilians have been killed, wounded, or displaced in the hundreds of thousands since 1988, including in acts of ethnic cleansing, such as the Kojali and Moraga massacres. However, we are not engaging in both sidesism in this recent attack, or others, particularly the 2020 conflict. Just as is the case with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Azerbaijan is engaging in an imperialist campaign that intends to eliminate Armenians and erase their ethnic identity. We are not calling on both sides to reconcile or for Armenia to de-escalate. That would be pointless when one side's goal is not the defeat, but the elimination of the other. We are calling on Azerbaijan to stop and for NATO and NATO allies to cease all aid to Azerbaijan. In the recent past, Azeri soldiers have killed civilians, used cluster munitions and white phosphorus, and posted videos of the beheadings and torture of Armenian soldiers and civilians on social media, and destroyed Armenia's cultural heritage in an attempt to make it seem like Armenians never lived there. Turkish author, and I apologize for probably mispronouncing her name, Hamide Renkuzagulari wrote on Twitter that, for her book on ISIS, she had to, quote, view every atrocious photograph, video so brutal that it dehumanizes the viewer. However, she, quote, could not bear to see what the Azeri soldiers did to the Armenian Anush Abetyab, referring to one video purportedly showing the rape, beheading, and mutilation of an Armenian woman. In addition, Azerbaijani ally President Erdogan of Turkey who continues to deny the 1915 Armenian genocide, deployed Syrian and Libyan mercenaries to assist Azerbaijan. The rhetoric and actions of both Erdogan and Azeri President Aliyev show that their intentions are genocidal. Case in point, Azerbaijan broke the ceasefire this time, again, and shelled civilian areas, again, according to Armenian authorities. Maybe words at a time like this are empty, but we hope to communicate two things. One, on the off chance that anybody in the line of fire is hearing this, please just know that somebody out there cares. Two, for everyone else, please do not let this attempted genocide go unnoticed just because it's not in the news as often as the equally important and tragic Russian invasion of Ukraine or the United States media's general tendency to avoid covering any of the previously mentioned facts about Azeri aggression and war crimes. The fact that it is flying under the radar right now is likely due in no small part to the fact that Azerbaijan is allied with NATO and Armenia with Russia, although Armenia is as much a victim of Russian imperialism as Azeri imperialism. And to reiterate, Azerbaijan is doing this with the help of the United States and NATO, with whom they are allied. This includes $164 million in aid to Azerbaijan in 2020 from the United States alone. This is the main reason that we are putting out this statement, and we did not put any statement out on Ukraine. The world united around Ukraine, rightfully, against Russian imperialism, and now it's time to do the same thing for Armenia. As George Orwell once said, pacifism is objectively pro-fascist. This is elementary common sense. So, if you want to help and aren't sure how, the Armenian Red Cross is always a great organization to donate to. And if we come across anything else, uh, we will be sure to pass it along on social media. On that pleasant note, let's get to the episode.
Здрасти, товарищи! Добро пожаловать, Sad Power! I'm Roberto. And I'm Brendan. And together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. This week, uh... <laughs> so we're going to see who gets to party it out in the Kremlin or get shipped off to the Gulag. This week, ruler number five, Sviatoslav I. Sviatoslav, okay. Sviatoslav. Sviatoslav, okay. Now that you say it twice, it's easy. Sviatoslav, all right. Or if you want to use the Ukraine, if you want to use the diminutive form, call him Slava or Slavic. <laughs> Slava? Slava or Slavic. I don't know. Knowing what's the word Slava means, I, I find it difficult to say that with a straight face. It sounds a little arrogant. Sounds a little arrogant to me. You got to you got to see what it means. Oh yeah, I already told you what it meant before. Yeah, it means glory. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> before we start, we have another amazing podcast to promote. Yeah. This time, they personalized their uh, their um, spot for us, which is really nice of them. Yeah, no, they're great. It's the Flatpak History of Sweden. Chris and Olsa run the show, and they're a lovely duo who showcase a very informative history of, well, Sweden. Enjoy! Hi, we're Chris and Olsa from A Flatpak History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you chronologically through the history of this Scandinavian kingdom. You're hearing this because, A, you obviously have great taste in podcasts, since you're listening to Sar Power, and B, you presumably like podcasts that cover countries and rulers that might be slightly lesser known. Sweden is so much more than Billy bookshelves you get from Ikea and the meatballs you find in the restaurant. So far, we've covered how the first people settled on this long and narrow strip of land in Northern Europe, began farming and trading, and eventually formed a kingdom known as Sweden. We meet Vikings, family-feuding kings and queens, troublesome Scandinavian neighbours, religious figures with a love for letter-writing, and ordinary people who are just trying to get on with their life. There's plenty of compromat and special operations to go round. We release an episode every other Sunday, including a fun Swedish phrase we translate. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Search A Flatpack History of Sweden and get on board the longboat that goes through the rough waters of this kingdom's history. Or check us out on social media. We're at Flatpack Sweden on Twitter, or just search A Flatpack History of Sweden on Facebook. Tack så mycket! So, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. How is it for you, Brendan? Uh, yeah, like I said, it's really sweet of them to, like, give us a custom custom uh, podcast spot. I know. We've been lazy with ours, and we're just kind of like, yeah, the podcast you're listening to. Hey! I mean, I thought that was industry standard. It was like, hi, welcome to the podcast you're listening. I mean, I thought switching them out was industry standard, but uh, they went the extra mile. No, they did, and that's why I love them. They're great. They're funny. Like, I love all their episodes and to all the danes and norwegians out there we still love you even though we've misattributed everything to the swedes because i get everything wrong i still i don't know i mean roberto never like sent me the tweets he just says oh just look at my mentions but apparently yes danes i'm sorry that i said harald bluetooth was norwegian i officially apologize (laughs) <laughs> and you know sometimes the chroniclers also mention that these oh yeah the swedes from this area and they're actually danish so whatever <laughs> whatever no, they're all northmen we love you all in scandinavia yeah no i i like i i consider scandinavia the same way a medieval british monk would which is that they're all northmen so yeah pretty much that's my only source for knowing anything about uh scandinavians by the way Including up to the present day. It isn't Vikings, the show? Well, no. Vikings is... Well, I mean, I know everything that happened in that show actually is real. Like, Odin did... Well, spoilers, but... Yes, indeed, Odin did show up to the uh, sons and daughters, I think, of uh, Ragnar Lothbrok to say that he died. Like, that's that's historically accurate. Yeah, of course. Odin is real. Yeah, and Rolo and Ragnar mm. were brothers. Absolutely. Odin is real, and he loves human sacrifice. There you we should go. do it. Totally. Sacrifice, sacrifice people to Odin, please. This is official endorsement of human sacrifice by the Tsar Powerpod. <laughs> it is not. Do not sacrifice people. Wink, wink. All right, well, I endorse it. Alrighty, with jokes aside, Brendan, would you like to recap us about Olga and her 
<laughs> Human sacrifices. <laughs> Olga was a total badass who was the wife of the late not-so-badass uh, Igor I of Kiev. And she, is so far, is the highest-ranked person due to her incredible cunning. The fact that she was able to trick people, trick um, Derivlians on three separate occasions to gather in one spot for her very conveniently and unarmed, I might add, not suspecting anything, in spite of the fact that they killed her husband. So, I mean, it, it's difficult to say what's stupidity on their part and what's cunning on her part, but it was certainly a lot of both. Yeah, so do you think her son can... Uh... I kind of doubt it. I, I tried to stop spoiling it for myself because I saw like how long her son ruled for. Um, but I, I don't know. Let's see. Actually, I think I already forget. I think he was, I don't know. Off the top of my head, it looked like he had like 17 points or something. It's difficult to top Olga because she not only took out many of her enemies, she took them out in the most brutal and spectacular way possible. So I don't know. Does her son share her bloodthirst? Who knows? You'll find out today. So as, as always, we like to start our rulers with a etymology thing which we stole from Battle Royale. Sviatoslav is actually the first name of our rulers that is of Slavic origin. Interesting. So it comes from a combination of the word Sviat, which means light or holy, and Slava, as you said earlier, meaning glory. So it means holy glory or holy worshiper. Wait, and so Oleg and Olga both had names deriving from the word for holy, respectively. So now we have three holies. We have three holies. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> Stratoslav's early life. How much do you think we know? Uh, I'd say quite a lot. Actually, probably the most we've had in the while. <laughs> since Rurik, if anything. It is that... No, it's it's a few <laughs> paragraphs. It's a few paragraphs yeah. worth, so just... It's a, but it's more than we've had in the last, like, three rulers, so... True. C- cut him some slack. Sviatoslav was born around March 943 AD to Igor I and Olga of Kiev. I think it's pretty cool that we finally got a month for this, honestly. Yeah, that is odd. I never noticed that before. They never mentioned a month. They just said, uh, 890-ish. 890-ish. No, we know the exact month and year he's born. So March 1943. Not the day. Not the day. So we don't know. The first mention that we see of him is when Igor I is murdered. And he is mentioned as being in Kiev with his mother at the said time of murder. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, and as he's growing up, he gets tutored by a Varangian warrior named Osmund upon the recommendation of the Varangian commander Svenald, who worked with Igor back in the day. That's that's an oddly, like, cinematic upbringing. Like, oh, who was your tutor? Oh, nothing, just a renowned warrior. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At the next few years of his life, he spends learning how to rule from his mother, who's regent, Olga. And he learns all his warrior skills and other knowledge from Osmund at the same time. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, wait. By the way, the Varangians are the Scandinavian bodyguards, right? Yeah. There's... Yes. They were Danish, right? Scandinavian. Let's just use Scandinavian from now on because we don't get in trouble with people. Yeah, yeah. Let's not get in trouble. <laughs> well, that'll make people even more mad because then the people who is like, oh, uh, the Varangians are from... Our country are going to be like, well, you're whitewashing us or whatever. Uh, hold on. They are from... So at this time, the Rangian Guard has not been formed. So they're not a thing yet. Okay, mainly Norsemen from Scandinavia, but also Anglo-Saxons. Okay, whatever. Yeah, so at this time, the Scandin- the, Scan- the Varangian Guard hasn't been formed. These are just Varangian warriors. Okay, I see. Yeah. Well, what's what's a Varangian then? The Varangians was the name given to by Eastern Romans to... Vikings, conquerors, traders, and settlers, mostly from Sweden. Okay, so who is probably Swedish? And at this time, Olga starts her doing her thing against the Derevlians, and she marches against them. And you know, Sviatoslav goes with her because that's what you do with the prince, because he is a crown prince. Yeah, I so, imagine so, so. So he has to go, and he is protected by Osmund and the rest of the Varangians as a protective unit. And in that first battle that I mentioned where they routed all the Derevlian soldiers, he actually threw the first weapon and he cast a spear towards one of the warriors. But because he's a young child, the spear barely cleared the horse's ears and brushed against another horse's leg. So, like, it didn't do any damage. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the one thing I never understood. It's like, if there's anything that like illustrates sometimes the absurdity of power is that I, this reminds me of something from Japanese history in the life of uh, the swordsman Miyamoto Musashi, which of course, like, yeah, I understand to the Japanese history buffs that everybody knows who he is. I, I don't know who he is, but make it brief. <laughs> okay. He was requested by a, his lord. I think, no, not his lord. A lord to guard his son in battle. And it's like, just don't send your son into battle. Yeah. He's like, don't send your kids into battle. But yeah. because he's the prince, he's like the actual, like, you know, ruler. He has yeah. to be there. He's the source of political power. Olga's just doing her thing in his name. And, you know, and then at this point, Sveinold and Osmund, they each laugh heartily. And they agree with his actions, stating, quote, The prince has already begun battle. Prince Osmund vassals after the prince. Hmm. And the army then proceeds to rout the Derevlians and force himself, force him to barricade in Iskoroston. And then, you know, we, we'd learned about what the events at Iskoroston last episode. But Sviatoslav was right alongside his mother as she watched the city burn to the ground. And he could see just how fearsome she could be. Yeah, I imagine it's pretty traumatic knowing that, I mean, I don't know what kind of mother she was, how she raised him, but she certainly demonstrated, like, everything you know is, like, if you got a problem with somebody, uh, burn their city to the ground. Yeah, pretty much. And at this point, the Chronicles like to go silent, and we don't see more of Sviatoslav until Olga comes back from Constantinople. And this is where she attempts to convert him to Christianity, but Sviatoslav scoffs at this and responds, quote, How shall I alone accept another faith? My followers will laugh at that. End quote. This guy really doesn't, he didn't learn his lesson from his mother. Yeah, if you have a problem with somebody, burn their city to the ground. You don't want to convert to Christianity? Well, we, there's a place for you in the sauna. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to remind you that Sviatoslav is in his teens right now. And if you remember yourself in middle school... You didn't want to be the, the uncool guy listening to your mom and doing the things she wanted. Yeah. And he he didn't want to lose his reputation with them. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm the Grand Prince, but they, they can still laugh at me. He refuses and remains a very staunch Slavic polytheist. And around this time, he takes two wives named Predslava and Malusha. It's odd that they were named as considering I don't, they end up doing anything. Yeah. And then he has three children. With two with um, Pretslava named Yaropolk and Alieg, and then with Malusha, that kid is named Vladimir. Am I supposed to get something from that? Yeah, no, not yet. And then he finally comes of age. Well, this is when Olga's okay with giving up her regency to him. He's like, all right, here's power, and he takes full control of Kievan Rus. She gives him a blessing, which he brushes off as his mother's foolishness, and sits down on the throne. And the, his mom gave him the best present she could as regent. She gave him a very consolidated realm, one in great shape, and with Kievan Rus soldiers hungry for battle. Yeah, I think she did all, like, the hard work for him. Oh, no, absolutely. Like, she, he doesn't have to worry about things right now. Because, like, he has a tax system in place that doesn't require him to be there. Uh, I'm just saying things in Olga's favor at this point, aren't I? <laughs> I'm just repeating myself. But... <laughs> It's kind of lame to say, like, oh, I, my mom set all this up for me. Yeah, I'm sure she did. Whoa, nice kingdom. Did your mom make it for you? <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, and, of course, to beat his mom, Sviatoslav was eager to make his mark upon the land himself. And he formed a massive army and planned out his campaigns. And he did something different than most of our other rulers. Die in his sleep? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> he, he actually lived in the same way as the rest of his soldiers. Interesting. He didn't give himself any luxuries that most viewers would give themselves. And instead of eating well-prepared meals, he would cut small strips of horse flesh, game, or beef, and ate it after roasting them on coals. And he roughed it out outside with his men without a tent and slept on his horse blanket and used his saddle as a pillow. Interesting. This kind of puts this thing about, like, not wanting to convert um into a new light i think he might just simply have a lot of respect for his men i, I think so too because you know especially because he was growing up with sveinald and osmund around his side all the yeah. time he was basically raised as a soldier right and this set an example that he was one of his soldiers and he was with them for the long haul yeah so he, I, I like it so far yeah 
we're going to shift our focus away from Kiev and Rus and go eastward to Crimea. It's at this point the Khazars are attempting to subjugate the Crimean Goths. Hey, hey! We aren't vampire kids! We're freaking Goth! So lame. So lame. And who were unable to repel the Khazars, but they could hold them at bay for a short time period. I mean, Goths are good at a lot of things, like making post-punk music, but unfortunately, <laughs> war is not one of them. <laughs> uh, tell that to the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> the Crimean Goths managed to send a message to, quote, the ruler north of the Danube who possessed a strong army and was proud of his military forces and from whose people they did not differ in customs and manner, end quote. This was a direct reference to Sviatoslav and the people of Kievan Rus. They sent an embassy in secret and a treaty was made in which the Crimean Goths recognized Sviatoslav as their overlord as long as he helped them against the Khazars. Sviatoslav was also very honor bound and he would never attack anyone with a surprise. So this basically puts him at direct contrast with his mom. <laughs> this is like his mom's greatest weapon and he won't do it. Yeah, I, you know, he's not yeah, Olga. <laughs> I'm sorry, I mean, that's not... That's points taken off Kompromat, but for, like... We're not even there yet. Uh, I don't know. We're not even there yet. We're, we just started his reign. So he sent an envoy to the Khazars and let them know that he was going to invade them. That's what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's so stupid. <laughs> They can tell if you're marching over the land. Oh, he's going to attack us. It's like, no, I have to warn them several months ahead of time. I need. They need to prepare. <laughs> yeah. Sviatoslav moved to unite his forces with that of Tumutorokan Rus, which is like down in like Upper Caucasus area. And he wanted to extend his control over the Azov region and open the road to the Caspian Sea to ease his conquest attempts and unite the lands under his control. Because you got to have pretty borders on your map, you know. Well, the Caspian Sea is also important to have access to. Uh, yeah, it's, it's that sea between, like, in Central Asia. It's basically like this massive lake that they call a sea. Right. Yeah, so he unites his forces with those of Timutorokan Rus, and marches with his men to attack the Khazars, aiming straight for the Khazar fortress in the lower Don River, called Sarkel. He besieged the fortress and easily took it over, and continued southward to subdue the Ossetians and the Circassians. I guess we're getting close to the Caucasus now. <laughs> yeah, this is starting to be a little bit of overlap. We're going to start getting a bit of overlap for a bit. So, hey, history of Sacramento, Georgia. Yep, there's your plug. That's my plug. With the lands of Kievan Rus and Tumutorokan united, Sviatoslav was proclaimed the Rus Kagan of the Tumutorokan Rus. So he basically got more control of, like, the Black Sea area. And the Khazar presence along Crimea and the Azov region were removed, removing the danger of any operations within that area. But Sviatoslav was not satisfied, as he intended to take out the Khazar Empire entirely. Ooh, very daring of him. It is. He didn't want a massive empire along a very indefensible border, because this is a steppe region. It's very hard to, like, protect it. And to continue his conquest, he needed to control the whole Volga River, which was controlled in the middle by the Volga Bulgars and in the lower section by the Khazars. He edged his way towards the Volga Bulgars and Sviatoslav turned his attention to the Vyatikians, who were a tribe directly bordering the Volga Bulgars. That's so hard to say. <laughs> Is it Volga Bulgars? Volga Bulgars. <laughs> yeah. So these were the vassals of the Khazars and he took them over pretty quickly. With the Vyatikians out of the way, he turned his attention to the Bulgars, because I don't want to say it at the, both anymore. And he marched towards their capital. Can you guess the name of the capital? The capital of the Volga Bulgars? Yep. Uh, Moscow? No. Bulgar. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> he oh, took wait, it over. Bulgars. Yeah, Bulgaria. Yeah, okay. No, no. Different, different, different section. These are okay. the Volga in the Volga River. So they're along the Volga River. This is south of the city of Kazan. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I went so, in the wrong direction then. You did. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> so he took over and plundered the city of Bulgar. And with that, he controlled two thirds of the Volga River and he could complete his final attack on the Khazars. But that didn't happen. He received a message from the West that would make him grin happily. 
the Byzantines felt threatened by the Bulgarian kingdom and wanted his assistance in beating them back. Huh, lucky. Yeah, <laughs> so we get more Bulgarians. <laughs> um, okay, now we get to the Bulgarians. Now we get, now we get to the Bulgarians. This was okay. a very common Byzantine tactic because they would pit what they considered two barbarian nations against each other. So, you just had the barbarians fight themselves, you know? Yeah, exactly. Emperor Nikephoros Phokas, the pale death of the Saracens, sent Kalokiris as his envoy to negotiate with Sviatoslav. First, can I say, isn't that such a great epithet? <laughs> yeah, that is an extremely, extremely metal uh, epithet. Yeah, the, the reason it's the pale death of Saracens is because when they saw him, they would just turn pale white and die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did. Uh, he's one of my favorite emperors. So I'm gonna give him the I'm gonna give him the attention he deserves. All right, fair enough, fair enough. So Kalokiras was a patrician and the chief magistrate of Herson, and he's a rather good person to send to Sviatoslav since Herson was the Byzantine part of Crimea that Sviatoslav didn't control. So they discussed several plans, and Sviatoslav eagerly accepted, a bit too easily, because he might have had plans to go against the Bulgarians anyways. So he just wants to conquer everything. His Khazar campaign was not fully completed, but this was a chance he wouldn't get again, because when is the Roman Empire going to subsidize your war, right? Right. So he asked Kalokiras to subsidize the war against the Bulgarians, and they gave him an advancement of 1,500 pounds of gold, uh, which nice. is a lot. Good for him. Yeah. Very great for him. Um, so you want to talk a little bit of Byzantine politics right now? Uh, sure. Kalokiras was a secret opponent of Emperor Phokas and may have mentioned to Sviatoslav that when the time came, he could go all the way down to Constantinople because Kalokiras had his eyes on the Byzantine throne and wanted to oust Emperor Phokas. Okay, and what's in it for Sviatoslav? He gets to raid all the way down to Constantinople and gets on the side of the Roman, the Roman Emperor if Kalokiris gets it. And he doesn't get to do... Well, besides the latter, he doesn't get to do that now. Well, because it's, they're just using him as, like, you know, as a, as, as a force. He's a mercenary right now, but, like, with this, he could get, like, into the graces and he can ask anything he wants from Kalokiris if Kalokiris becomes Emperor. Right, and that's a big if. That's a big if, yeah. And so how does he intend to defeat the Byzantine army? Well, we're not there yet. Okay. But let's get back into the trenches, because Sviatoslav moves into Bulgaria with an army of no less than 40,000 soldiers, and Kalokiras leading a group of 16,000 Byzantine auxiliaries. By the autumn of 967, northern Bulgaria was completely covered with Kievan Rus and Byzantine soldiers, and Sviatoslav took over the fortress of Periaslavets, which was on the Danube River Delta, and he wintered there. Seeing no end to the Rus onslaught, the Bulgarian Tsar, Peter, turned to the Pechenegs and requested their assistance in attacking the Rus from the rear. The Khazars, as revenge for the loss of their vassals and huge chunks of their territory, allowed the Pechenegs through the Volga River, and their hordes made their way across Kiev and Rus, centralizing their efforts on Kiev. So, we're going to go away from P Bulgaria. We're going to zoom in on Kiev now. Because guess who's in the castle at Kiev? Uh, Olga? Olga. Olga was in the hall, along with the young Yaropolk, Oleg, and Vladimir, with their moms, Predslava and Malusha. They witnessed the forces surrounding the city, making it impossible to escape or send messages to Sviatoslav for assistance. What do you think of Olga's chances now? I mean, this is Olga we're talking about. <laughs> I wouldn't count, take her out of the count just yet. Yeah, true. You got, you're right. Days passed and supplies ran low. The inhabitants were starving and thirsty, growing weaker day by day, and the siege did not let up. They recognized that if they were going to get assistance from anybody, they needed to go across the river to contact the garrison. But all the boats were on the side of the shore with the garrison on it. Uh huh. So they gave themselves another day before they capitulated, unless Olga was able to do something. I think she probably would have been able to do something. At least. But it's not Olga. Because we get a young boy who pipes up and says that he would attempt to cross the river to fetch the garrison to assist them and provide supplies for the besieged city. The denizens begged him to attempt to cross, lest they all perish the following day after their surrender. So this boy snuck out of the city with a bridle in hand. You know that thing you used to hit horses with? 
That's a rutted crop. Well, he had a bridle. Uh, whatever that is, then. I, I, I thought it was for horses. Yeah, a bridle is a bridle is how you steer a horse. Oh, well, he had a bridle in his hand. And his only saving grace was that he can speak in the Pecheneg language. So he ran around the camp asking in the Pecheneg tongue if anyone had a horse. The Pechenegs were very confused about who this kid was. And when it dawned on them that he was Slavic, they started running after him, shooting arrows that flew around his body. He undressed very quickly and jumped into the Nipper River and swam out of the city. As he crossed the river, a fisherman found him and pulled him onto the boat, taking him to the shore. Yeah, it's not every day that you find a naked kid in the river. Right? <laughs> At the dock, he was given a blanket to dry off and cover himself, and he reported the news from Kiev to the garrison leader, a Rus general named Petrik. Petrik made the decision of announcing to the garrison that they will make their way across to rescue the princess and the young princes, while also bringing supplies to the people of the city. If they failed in their attempts to save the royal family, Sviatoslav would bring his wrath onto them and kill them all. Because imagine losing your mom and your kids. So that's his incentive is, if you don't do this, I'll kill you. But no, Petrik is basically saying, if we, if we fail, we're going to die either way, but Sviatoslav will probably kill us even worse. Again, he okay, so he has the stick. Where's the carrot? There is no carrot. <laughs> it's either you die from it's either you do this or you're gonna get killed by Sviatoslav or the Pechenegs. That sounds like Russia to me. It does. <laughs> the following morning, more horns sounded, and the Pechenegs were terrified, thinking it was Sviatoslav coming up river to attack them. And they fled in all directions. What they were they weren't even gonna try? They're not even gonna try. So the siege was Sheesh. temporarily halted and Olga Predslava, Malusha, and all the princes were taken over to the garrison and kept in safety. It's at this point that Olga inquired how they were saved, and the young boy was brought to them. She asked his name, and he responded that his name is Jefislav, Jefimirovich, Jefianov, or Jeff for short. You're you're not <laughs> kidding me right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. The... So this is so this is an actual story in the chronicles, but the boy is never named or mentioned afterwards. So I'm just gonna call him Jeff. He's a very oh, okay. rare, competent Jeff, but he's Jeff nonetheless. All right. So, but this is this is actually in the Chronicles. The story is. Okay. I just thought, I just thought like, it would be like a WTF moment for you if you're like, wait, what, Jeff? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Wasn't this an inside joke with Totalist Rankium or something? It, all the Re- Rexypod fans. Okay. Because I'm not familiar. <clears throat> I'm not familiar. You need to listen. <laughs> I do listen. Just not, I don't have time. I know. I know. So, the Pechenegs sent an envoy to Kiev, and since the prince of the Pechenegs thought that Petrik was Sviatoslav himself, and he was basically told, no, I'm not Sviatoslav, I am Petrik, but the grand prince is on his way with a much larger force. Do you think this is true? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of up in the air. I mean, yeah. if he says it's true, I'll just take his word for it. Well, it's a complete lie. <laughs> <laughs> The Pechenik prince deemed it to be true and requested friendship with Petrik. They agreed and exchanged weapons and the siege was lifted and the forces retreated. Now that they were able to send messages out, they sent a message to Sviatoslav saying, quote, Oh prince, you visit and frequent foreign lands, but while you neglect your own country, the Pechenegs have all but taken us captive along with your mother and your children as well. Unless you return to protect us, they will attack us again if you have no pity on your native land, on your mother in her old age, and on your children, end quote. That's a very severe, I don't know, um, really taking him to task there. Oh yeah, no, I mean, to be fair, he's been gone for a bit. Mm-hmm. Being a deadbeat son, shameful. Yeah, he's being a super deadbeat son, so like, can you blame them for being pissed? No, I can't. So, getting this message, Sviatoslav raced to Kiev along with his retinue, and he left a strong garrison in Periaslavets. He came into Kiev, kissed his mother, wives, and his children, and apologized to them for not being there to assist them. He then talked to his garrison, and he asked them, where are the Pechnegs? And you can see that fire was coming out of his eyes. They told him where the Pechnegs were, and he rode back out and covered Kievan Rus with his forces, and drove the Pechenegs out of his land. He returned back to Kiev, and with the Pechenegs gone from Kiev and Rus, 
and spending some time back in his capital, he found that he no longer liked being in his childhood home. His time in Periaslavitz had grown on him, and Sviatoslav called his mother and boyars together, stating to them that he was moving the capital of his realm from Kiev to Periaslavitz, stating, quote, I do not care to remain in Kiev, but should prefer to live in Periaslavitz on the Danube, since that is the center of my realm, where all riches are concentrated, gold, silks, wine, and various fruits from Greece, silver and horses from Hungary and Bohemia, and from Rus furs, wax, honey, and slaves. So he really changed his mind on the whole sleeping outside with his saddle for a pillow thing. Well, he still does it when he's like actively campaigning. He just doesn't like it. I think, I think he just doesn't want to be in Kiev anymore. Okay. Yeah. And the room stood silent because the boyars were confused. They're like, wait a second, what? Because Kiev was like, you know, where Oleg made the capital and it was the best location for them. Mm-hmm. So Olga approached him and told him that he mentions this to her when she's at her weakest because she is super ill after being stuck in that siege. And she, she can't travel anywhere. And this is a time when Sviatoslav wants to leave her, like, you know, from here in Kiev. So she begged Sviatoslav to remain in Kiev until she passed away and was buried before he could move to the capital. Which I think is a nice request, don't you think? Yeah. So Sviatoslav agrees to this, you know, because it's his mom. You're not going to tell her, no, I'm not going to do this, even though you asked me to. And then not even three days later... Olga passed away from her illness. Ah, uh, well, rip to the best ruler so far. Rest in peace. Press F to pay respect. Yeah, press F. Ah, oh, Olga. Can you hear me? I'm pressing F. <laughs> I hear you, I hear you. <laughs> so, in agreement to Olga's wishes, she was carried out and buried in a tomb with a priest performing the service. There was no funeral feast because that's a pagan tradition. And the people of Kiev wept for their lost princess. None wept harder than Sviatoslav and his three sons. So he cared. He really did care. Yeah. I guess he was a good son. Yeah, he was a good... Yeah, I think he was a good son to her, you know. Except, you know, basically causing her to get even worse by saying, I want to move. Uh, so, the chroniclers then mention that, quote, Olga was a precursor of the Christian land, even as the day spring precedes the sun as... And as the dawn precedes the day, dot, dot, dot. She was the first from Rus to enter the kingdom of God, and the sons of Rus thus praise her as their leader, for since her death she has interceded with God in their behalf, end quote. Uh, interesting. Yeah, that's what, they had, that's what they had to say with her after she died. How much of a role, how much of a role did Sviatoslav play in the canonization of his mother? She wasn't canonized until the 1500s. Okay. So at least, at least like almost half a millennia afterwards. Yeah. So we're not, we're not, except we're not going to get, we're not going to be able to mention that again because she's dead now. So unfortunate. unfortunate. With Olga now buried, Sviatoslav got to work. He placed his sons in charge of three different cities. He placed Yaropolk, his eldest, in Kiev. He placed Alieg in Dereva. And he placed Vladimir in Novgorod. With this complete, he moved the court officially to Periaslavitz. Periaslavitz. Where is Periaslavitz? It is no longer a city. Oh. Huh. You'll That's find out why. Yeah. He came home to a full-on Bulgarian revolt in Periaslavitz. They had fortified the city while he was gone, and Sviatoslav had to once again siege the, his newfound capital. Oh, poor him. I know, right? All this hard work. The Bulgarian citizens sallied forth to attack the Rus' forces, and the Bulgarians won that battle. Like, they beat back the Rus. The Grand Prince of Kiev was not discouraged, though, and he gave a rather riveting speech to his troops that boosted their morale, and he attacked the city by storm, taking it over. We don't have access to that speech, but the Chronicles say it was very riveting. I'll take a word for it. You know, the Chronicles so far never let us down so far. Never have. <laughs> So it's around this time where we get news of a second Khazar campaign, and this is not mentioned in the Russian primary chronicles. But it is mentioned by the writer Ibn Haukal, and he says that the Rus plundered the cities of Itil and Samander, thus ending the great Khazar empire at the hands of Sviatoslav. He took down a whole empire, dude. Yeah. Okay. Now that you say it now, it's like, it's it's setting in. 
we're not really sure if Sviatoslav led this group himself or if he placed his generals in charge because he was a bit too busy dealing with Bulgaria. Well, fair enough. I mean, you, sure, you can't. He can be credited with picking the right generals unless Olga picked him. Well, it is under our ranking, is like, you know, or how others led in battle for him. So it's still his success. So while he's away in Kiev, the Bulgarians and the Byzantines reconciled, and they formed a joint force against the Rus. Oh yeah, this is this is rough for him. But Kalokiris remained on his side, and he was openly against the Emperor, Phokas now, and he urged the Byzantines to revolt against him. And can you imagine what happened? Uh, I think uh, the current Byzantine Emperor wins this one. That's my guess. Oh, no. Oh. The, the Byzantines actually did revolt. Oh, wow. Okay, so like, he must have been a bad emperor. But not in the way Calochiris wanted. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Byzantine general, John Zimiskis, gained the love of the empress and murdered Phokas. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Got... Again, I just reflecting on, like, just the absurdity... I don't, just the absurdity of, like, monarchy. It's like, a family rules this, and a love affair changes the entire political situation for an entire country so the empress at this point marries john and he became the emperor but this did not change the joint force against the Rus because john zimiskis or emperor zimiskis was the best general of the byzantine empire and so he marched with his troops upwards to meet the Rus. and calocurus's support dries up immediately after this change in events because he no longer has his whole people to tell him you can't fight the, the Rus anymore. Ah, <laughs> oh, too bad. In Constantinople, a messenger arrives from the Rus to Emperor John Zimisky, stating that Sviatoslav was on his way to meet him in battle. Uh, Sviatoslav and his honor-bound messages. Sviatoslav is uh, not a smart fellow. Not as smart as uh, as Olga. So he fell from Igor's side of the tree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess you could say that. Man, how did somebody as stupid as Igor end up with someone as smart as, as Olga of Kiev? Because someone as smart as Alieg married them, probably. Yeah, fair enough. With Periaslavitz now under the control of uh, Sviatoslav once more, he, uses, he used this position to take Bulgaria by storm, and he took the capital of Preslav and captured Tsar Boris and the rest of his family. So he has the Bulgarian Tsar under his mantle now. Okay. Well... Uh, good for him. And this would be the last major victory for the Rus. With the last? For like... For for, for, for Sviatoslav. Oh, Sviatoslav. Sviatoslav. Okay. Because it's like, I don't know. I'm, I mean, obviously I'm rooting for the Rus right now. Yeah. Well, Emperor Zimisky has made his way northward and had defeated the Rus army in several different battles. And the war turned into the Byzantines' favor. Uh. The Kievan Rus took refuge in the fortress of Dorostol in Silistria... And they were immediately besieged by the Byzantine army. Days passed and the Kievan Rus started running low on rations. Sviatoslav then met with Emperor Zimiskis and they signed a treaty together where he would abandon his claims to Bulgaria and the Crimean Peninsula. Oh, God. And that he could no longer wage war with Byzantium. Well, I think that's included in the treaty. But man, all that work, just like gone. Well, just the Crimean Peninsula. So like, you know what? What? You Tell that to Russia now. It's oh, it's just the Crimean <laughs> Peninsula. Yeah, yeah, but that's not that's not how it. You know, there's still more though. So just buckle okay. up. Rather unhappy and with his troops severely decreased, the Roman Emperor gave Sviatoslav some tribute and let them go. Sviatoslav noted that if he didn't get home soon, the Byzantine army might take him by surprise and kill him and the rest of his retinue, because you know they wouldn't send him a nice messenger saying they're going to attack. True. Ah, oh, gosh. There's no honor anymore. So sad to see. <laughs> I know, right? So Sviatoslav's resolve to get back to Kiev grew stronger. To ensure that the Byzantines wouldn't take advantage of their now weakened state, he sent some boyars to showcase their intentions for peace and strengthen their treaty. And the Emperor, Emperor Zimisky sent the boyars back with more treasures. So, you know, the Romans are like, okay, you know, you attacked us, but now, you know, as long as you're not going to fight us, it's okay, right? Yeah, as long as everybody knows knows the score. In the meantime, Emperor John Zimiskis had alerted the Pechnegs that Sviatoslav was returning back to Kiev and that he had quite a bit of a way to go. 
He was moving slowly because he was over-encumbered with goods just right for the taking. Okay, I- I'm sorry, I'm nodding my head along here. Back on the Dnieper River, Sveinald, Svetoslav's Varangian general, advised him to continue home on horseback as the river was making them move slowly because they had a lot of stuff on them and that his scouts reported Pechnegs nearby. Okay. Svetoslav paid no heed to this hmm. and continued upriver. Ah, uh, yes. I see. Once again, Igor's side of the family is uh, taking over. <laughs> oh, yeah. The people of Periaslavets were pretty angry of Svetoslav and... They had told the Pechneks where Sviatoslav was exactly and sent them along that way. Huh. Because the people in Periaslavets were Bulgarians, so, like, they didn't want him. And the Pechneks waited patiently for Sviatoslav and his retinue and ambushed them at a narrow pass, making it near impossible for Sviatoslav to pass them. He managed to escape the Pechneks and wintered in Beloereg, but the troops' rations were running low. Winter turned to spring, and Sviatoslav made his way home, and approached the cataracts near the island of Hortizia along the Dnieper, and he was attacked by the Pechneg Kagan, Kuria. A fierce battle ensued, and Sviatoslav and Kuria met on the battlefield. They came blow to blow, but Sviatoslav met his end as Kuria decapitated him. The rest of the Rus' army was able to break through and go home, but Sviatoslav was dead, and Kuria returned home, turning the Grand Prince's skull into a cup overlaid with gold. Holy. Again. Why is things so brutal? <laughs> That's just like, I mean, I get that the, things are different now, but my god. Yeah. And you know what the best part is? Um, We still have his goal? No, no, I wish. Yeah, me too. Sviatoslav left three sons of age around Kiev and Rus. Oh, well, that's lucky. Well, clearly the women in the family are the brains of the operation. So like... <laughs> If you three sons, I can mean come on. I don't know. This doesn't bode well. I, I this this is a dark and stormy cloud on the horizon for Rus. Oh yeah, Sviatoslav is dead. A very centralized government just fell, and he left three sons with no succession plan. Well, it goes to the oldest, right? No. Okay. Well, it goes to the one with the biggest army. It's it goes to whoever can win. <laughs> we'll find out next time. I'm not gonna say who it is. I mean, you can see in the, the our ranking chart, but don't. So, I, <laughs> yeah, that's that's Sviatoslav. <laughs> Man. That was a lot of information, wasn't it? Uh, certainly was. Oh, yeah. So, uh... Okay. Uh, are you ready to rank him? Yes, and you, you already sent me these this time, so... Uh, yeah. I can, okay. All right, go. Spezialna Operatia. Special Operations. How well did they do in battle? Lead in battle. Or have others lead in battle for them? What do you think? Okay, so... In all fairness... In terms of losing everything... That was a miscalculation that I don't think could have been foreseen. But also, you're going up against the Byzantine Empire. You're getting yourself involved in internal Byzantine politics. It's not terribly a smart move. And it's a massive gamble because if your guy that you support doesn't... It's over. So, like, in terms of, like, marked successes, okay, so <clears throat> he conquered... Did, wait, you, did he only ever conquer the two-thirds of the Volga River? No, he conquered the whole thing. Okay, so he conquered the whole Volga River. So, no, he... Because I remember I said he did a second and... He did a second in, uh, campaign against them and he conquered the whole yeah. Khazar Empire? Yeah, okay, so he conquered the whole... Okay, so toppling an empire, that's... That is really something. So I have to give him points for that. I'd say toppling an entire empire would take you up to, like, initially, it would take you up to, like, I mean, entire empire, they'd take you up to a 10, I guess. But we have to dock points now, because he lost it all, like, not long after. Okay, so, I'm gonna send you an image right now. Okay. So, so you know, the red, we're gonna put this in the, in the website. Mm-hmm. The red is what he started off with. The orange is what he, he finished with. Before he lost it all. Yeah. Well, he only lost the the Crimean part. Okay, so only lost Crimea. So Crimea, I think, uh, yeah, is in the southeast. And the Bulgaria part. And the Bulgarian part. Okay, so, so he lost, like, the southwest of his territory and the southeast of his territory. But looking at, like, what he... Okay, so he ended up with... So, like, this, this stretches from the East Slavs, this is labeled here, 
all the way to the Volga Bulgars, almost to the Kipchaks in the east. Mm-hmm. And if he okay, so he lost Crimea, and he lost the Bul- the Danube Bulgars, yeah, the Black Sea, area. yeah. But so he didn't get the Pechenegs, but I mean this territory is still pretty pretty impressive, I would say. And from what he started yeah, with, it's what yeah, that's what he started with. Um, yeah, compared to what he started with, it looks like he he more than doubled his territory at least. And you can tell it's all along riverways too. And like, if he only lost this, that's like a that's certainly a net gain. So it's still like a massive miscalculation. But like, I mean, if you're in war long enough, eventually one of these miscalculations is going to happen. I I do want to say one thing. The chroniclers describe him like when he starts the. When he starts his like com- his campaigns for conquest, the Kronkers literally describe him as someone who's been planning this out for years and does it with the quickness and efficiency unseen with any other ruler. Yeah. So losing all that territory as well as his, as his life, you know, I think I'll give it, I kind of wanted to say seven, but I'm leaning towards a six now. I think I'll go for like a six and a half. Okay. I'm going to give him a, an eight because I think he did pretty fantastic regarding like just being able to conquer the Khazars like entirely mm-hmm. like yeah sure he lost the invasion of Bulgaria but he was that was only because the Byzantines like turned face and went against him at the end right but like he had like he took you know he took he captured the Bulgarian Tsar he had him basically as as his vassal you know he basically had the the Byzantines like because he won a few battles against the Byzantines it's just that he ended up losing like, once Zimskis took over. But, and then, you know, he died in battle against the Pechenegs. So, like, I'm reducing two because of, you know, losing to the Byzantines and losing to the Pechenegs at the end. But overall, like, he's he hadn't lost a battle up until he got involved with the Byzantines and they turned face against him. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. six and a half plus eight is uh, 14 and a half. Yep. Uspiech. Success. How successful were they in running their nation? What cultural significance did they leave behind? Okay, so this is overall success. I, we heard way more about what he conquered than running what he already had. Because his mom set it up like so efficiently for him, he didn't have to worry about it. Also, he seems sort of overall pretty neglectful of his homeland. Mm-hmm. It's like, they had a garrison, but like that garrison was actually pretty far away from... Kiev. They had to, like, go get the garrison yeah. to come save them. But, like, okay, presumably he had people running the place for him. Although, again, his mother laid all the groundwork for all that. Um, So, like, I don't know. I can't give him a ton of credit. Maybe I'll give him a four. Yeah, I was thinking a four just because he's able to conquer all that land. And, like, I, th- you know, because I think he, his story is also, like, pretty memorable as well. Because, mm-hmm. so, culturally, like... Culturally, he still looked for he still looked at as like a like a, a successful like warrior king, warrior. Yeah, prince. he was very successful, but as a conqueror, not necessarily. Again, he just neglected his homeland to be. He did, yeah, and that's I don't think that deducts points because like he didn't really care for his people that much. All he wanted to do was you know all all the Rus know to do is you know go to war and eat horse flesh off coals, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah so who's born after 950 can't cook all they know is conquer other countries no after 940 after, after 940 40 all they know is conquer other lands uh get decapitated be made into cup and lie <laughs> yeah well that's a total of eight points then for yeah um Uspiech. so he beat his he beat his dad at least yeah he is, uh, that's not a high bar to clear <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. Again, the brains the brains are on the women's side. He yeah. He did not take after his mom. <laughs> he didn't. That he did not. Alrighty. Compromise. Blackmail. What dastardly deeds did they do behind closed doors or outwardly that made others dislike them? He was one of the boys, you know. <laughs> yeah. So he was a pretty honorable person. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was an honorable person. He showed a lot of respect for his men by not really elevating himself above them with luxuries while they while he was campaigning. 
so yeah, not a whole lot of compromat here. Um, he was plotting against his emperor, the Byzantine emperor, and completely messed that up. But who knows? Maybe that emperor was a, that emperor was kind of a bad emperor, considering people went along with the revolution. I guess it was more so that people revolted because it was also very pious and like very strict. So like, Focas didn't really give himself. He was he was he was liked as a general, but hated as an emperor, basically. Yeah, so maybe I'll give him like a two for compromat. I actually have something, uh, a quick piece of information. Okay, I was saving this because I I didn't want to say it because it wouldn't didn't flow well narratively. So, according to Leo the Deacon, the Rus stormed the city of Philippopolis, which is now called Plovdiv, and impaled twenty thousand of its surviving inhabitants. Like Vlad the Impaler. My understanding of impalement is that it went in the anus and out the mouth. Yes. Uh, that is brutal. Uh, God, history is so brutal. He got something from his mom. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking after his mom, but these people didn't do anything to him. Like, these other people deserved it. Yeah, these were, like, these were like the people of the city who weren't fighting. Right, okay. And this is so, according to Leo the Deacon, a Byzantine historian. So, basically... Not only war crimes, but particularly horrible war crimes. Like ISIS-level war crimes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm inclined to increase his compromat score. Five comes to mind, but I think a six is more appropriate. Yeah, I was thinking of, uh, if you're going to give him five, if you're going to give him a six, I'm going to give him a five. Okay. Because I, I think that is a good score to like, because that is horrible. Yeah. Because <laughs> these are, these are civilians. Yeah. Like, if this is like a... Not- these are civilians, and also, like... Impalement is an extraordinarily horrible way to die. It is. For, for anyone, you know, again, Vlad the Impaler was the... Vlad Tepish of Transylvania was most famous for doing this. It is a sharpened wooden stake that is inserted into the anus until it comes out the mouth. And if done correctly, it does not kill you right away. You might think it kills you right away. It does not. You basically... Yeah, the person is basically on their dying extremely painfully. Yep. Until they bleed out, basically. Yep. And uh, let's go into, uh... Bojemoy! Oh my god! How good do they look? So, so, let's see how handsome of a fellow this guy was. Actually, I have something different for you today. Oh, great. Is this, is, I swear to god, if this is... Oh, just send it. No, it's a description. Oh! Okay. We have a description. Thank God. I thought you were going to send something way worse. <laughs> no. So, so this is a description by the historian Leo the Deacon when Sviatoslav met Emperor John Zimiskis in 971. Okay. Sviatoslav crossed the river in a kind of Scythian boat. He handled the oar in the same way as his men. His appearance was as follows. He was of medium height, neither too tall nor too short. He had bushy brows blue eyes, and was snub-nosed. He shaved his beard, but wore a long and bushy mustache. His head was shaven except for a lock of hair on one side as a sign of nobility of his clan. His neck was thick, his shoulders broad, and his whole stature pretty fine. He seemed gloomy and savage. On one of his ears hung a golden earring adorned with two pearls and a ruby set between them. His white garments were not distinguishable from those of his men except for cleanness. So it seems to me like he didn't think of him as a particularly handsome guy. Called him s- snub-nosed, thick-necked, bald, or shaved head. I'm really excited to tell you because you know what he looks like? What? He looks like a Cossack. <laughs> he's, a, he's a Cossack. I love Cossacks. <laughs> oh. mm. Yeah. And uh, and here is the portrait of him meeting John Simiskis. Oh, okay. Because that's the one we're going to use. You don't have to describe him because we yeah. just described him. So yeah, um, this is not what I would call a conventionally handsome person. But he is fearsome. Yeah, he's scary. He's very much a scary looking, scary looking person. I, I want to give him points just for being scary. Yeah. Somehow, I mean, knowing him, like he's certainly savage and fierce looking. I'm still more afraid of Olga of Kiev. Yeah, she don't because he's gonna let you know he's gonna kill you. Yeah, she wouldn't. <laughs> Yeah. So. Like, certainly, this is a very severe-looking person, but just, like, even when Olga of Kiev was, like, looking, just 
slightly severe. She was still very beautiful. Mm-hmm. This is not this is not what I call a handsome man. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna give him a one for for Bojemoy. I'm gonna give him a four. Why? Because we have, we have one. We have a description. Uh-huh. Two. He's pretty fearsome. Okay, but we're talking about handsomeness. Yeah, but like it's also like you know how good does he look? I think he looks pretty good because he's like. You know, if we have a description so we can accurately see, like, we can accurately paint him, basically. Or semi-accurately. You know, I like fierce-looking people, you know, mm-hmm. men. Especially if they're, like, rulers. And then, two points for being a Cossack. Well, I'm sticking with a one. Not a, hands- not a handsome guy. That's fine. We can rate them differently. It's okay. No, sorry. You have to rate them the same as me. Give him a one right now. Never. Okay. No. Whatever. <laughs> okay. And that is a five for Bojemoy. And last but not least, Vladishistva. Longevity. How long did they last on the throne? So, as, as always, we do not have input on this one. And Sviatoslav was technically on the throne since 945. So do you want to give him more points for being Grand Prince during Olga's regency, or do you want to go from when he actually got full control? Uh, let's go full control, because this is about who was the ruler of Russia, and I think we discussed this earlier, we said, it's like technically other people were in charge um, during certain points of the Soviet Union, but no, Stalin was in charge, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so we, yeah. That's the, that's the rule we're making. So, given that, we're going, so we're going to attribute the rule of Olga to Olga, and then he's going to have ruled from 959 to 972, which is a total of 13.17 years for a total score of 5.24. So his mom beat, beat him out, but just by a few months. Wow. Huh. Wait, sorry. He, sorry, he beat out his mom by a few months? No, his mom beat him. Right. Okay. Huh. Alrighty. So that gives Sviatoslav a total score of... 43.74. Sorry, I, I, I closed the thing out. Now I need to look at it again. All right, let's see here. So in terms of overall score, that puts him third place. Okay, so he is he's beating out Igor the first and Rurik. Huh. Yeah. So he's beating out his dad and grandpa, basically. Yeah. All right, well, I think that only leaves one thing. Does he deserve to party it out in the Kremlin, or do we ship him off to the Gulag? I'm inclined to say Gulag. Really? Oh, but the stories, they're so interesting. (laughs) I mean, okay, so I respect him for, you know, being amongst his men. I like that about him. You know, and it may also just be unbiased because we're coming off of Olga of Kiev. Yeah, we are just coming off straight off of Olga, so this is super unbiased. It's a super biased, but yeah, I'm trying to look at it with like you know, this is just Sviatoslav. He just but, strikes me as thoroughly unremarkable. Uh, you know, you're right. I think I'm also just like enamored because he's a Cossack. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I get that about him, but overall, he's just not remarkable. So yeah, I'm gonna stay with putting him in gulag you know you want to roll for it <laughs> well if we can't agree we'll have to roll yep uh question what kind of dice do you want me to use um 20 sided 20 sided dice if it's even okay if it's even he's in the kremlin if it's odd he's off to gulag okay so which okay so which dice because i have uh, Necronomicon dice. I have the Witcher dice. I'd say the Witcher dice. Let's go with the Witcher dice. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, so, even. He goes to the Kremlin. Even even Kremlin on Gulag. Okay. And that is an eleven. So it's odd. Odd. So he goes off to the Gulag. Oh, too bad. The, the, the gods. The gods have spoken. He goes off to the Gulag. Alrighty, you know, sorry, Sviatoslav, but sorry. I was on your side. But it looks like you're. It looks like uh, 
Therun was not. That pretty much covers Sviatoslav. Oh, that was that was a pretty long episode. We're still yeah. We're not even done yet. Oh, <laughs> oh right, yeah, yeah. No, we still have a poem. Oh, yeah. Of okay. The poem this time is by Marina Tsvetaeva, who wrote during the early Soviet period. She is probably one of the greatest poets of the 20th century in Russia. However, I won't say more about her life because it makes me want to cry. We'll cover her in a future Patreon episode as part of a Russian writer series. Patreon plug. <laughs> uh, okay, this poem is called um, The Demon and Me, or Demon Vermenier, or Jivanie Umed, or Live and Not Die. It's, it doesn't really have a name. Okay. So, yeah, let me start. Jiv, ani umer. Demon vamenye. Ftile kakev trume. Sebie kakev turme. Mir etastini. Vihod tapor. Mir etatsiena epechetaktior. Inestukavil, shur kolchenagi. Ftile kakev slavie. Ftile kakev togie. Nogi lieta. Jiv talaji. Tolka paeti v kasti kakev leji. Niet Niguliatnam, Pievce Bratia, Tile Kakevatnom, Archum Kalatie, Lucivastaim, Chaknom Tople, It Tile Kakevstoilie, Sebie Kakevkatlie, Brenik Nekapim, Vilikaliepi, Tile Kakevtopi, Tile Kakevskepe, Tile Kakevkrainie, Silke Zachach, Tile Kakevtainie, Viviskach Kakevtiskach, Maski Jeliesnoi. Written on January 5th, 1925. Uh, okay, first, how do you say your name again? Svetaeva. Okay. The Demon in Me by Marinus Svetaeva. Translated by David Macduff. The demon in me is not dead. He's living and well. In the body as in a hold. In the self as in a cell. The world is but walls. The exits, the acts. All the world's a stage, the actor prates. And that hobbling buffoon is no joker, in the body as in glory, in the body as in a toga. May you live forever, cherish your life, only poets in bone are as in a lie. No, my eloquent brothers, will not have much fun, in the body as with father's dressing gown on. We deserve something better, we wilt in the warm, in the body as in a buyer, in the self as in a cauldron. Marvels that perish, we don't collect. In the body as in a marsh, in the body as a crypt. In the body as in furthest, exile, it blights. In the body as in a secret, in the body as in the vice of an iron mask. To get more direct contact with us, feel free to access our website at zarpowerpod.weebly.com. Weebly is spelled W-E-E-B-L-Y. There you can find the show notes, pictures, bibliography, and vote on whether you think Sviatoslav deserved the Kremlin or the Gulag. It also has links to our social media, which is just at ZarPowerPod. Zar is spelled T-S-A-R. And where can I find you, Brendan? Uh, you can just follow me on Twitter at Foster underscore writing. If you'd like to support the show to help us expand and grow, feel free to subscribe to our Patreon to get access to bonus episodes for both Zar Power and the history of Sarkovilla, Georgia. If you'd like to do something that's free, leave a review on your favorite podcast toast, be it on Apple or on Spotify. And that's a Dosvidenia Tovarishi from me. And that's a Vlosh Prozde Parazitov from me. See you soon. Bye.